Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Colin Baker, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Travelers and welcome to a special Memorial Day edition of the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the random adjective inserted here task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have a very special guest, a man whose work we have discussed on this program several times, well, at least four times, and whose work as editor of the Target range shaped what many of us, myself included, were reading as teenage Doctor Who fans, and that would be Mr. Nigel Robinson. Hello, Nigel. Hello, there. I hope you said good things about me. Oh, mostly. Mostly. <laughs> yeah, mostly, yeah. <laughs> one of our panelists, Allison, says that uh, The Time Meddler is definitely one of her favorite Doctor Who books. Yeah. yeah. Even though she does have an issue with it, which we'll bring up later in the interview. Uh, yeah. And I, I feel the same way myself about Edge of Destruction. Uh-huh. So, so definitely we had a lot of people on Facebook who had questions as well, but I'm going to start off yep. with the main one, which is, and this is going to retread some material that was probably covered in the uh, the Target book that was done by David yep. J. Howe. How yep. did you become involved with the Target range initially? Um, I was at university. I studied modern languages at university, and when I graduated, um, I was unemployed for a year, which wasn't so bad back then. Uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, was I had a gap year between sixth form and university, and we loved Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. So we essentially spent most of our lunch times in the pub, quizzing ourselves over Lord of the Rings, and out of that we. Got a Lord of the Rings quiz book, which got published by W.H. Allen. And when they published that, I just said to them, Hey, you, you do the Doctor Who books. What about a Doctor Who quiz book? And that's how it started. Um, I did about three Doctor Who quiz books for them, plus a crossword book. And um, because the editor of the Doctor Who range at the time wasn't a particular fan of the range, she started giving me uh, freelance jobs editing all the books. And in the end, I became editor of Doctor Who. How how long was that previous editor there before you came on? I think Christine Donahue, who was incredibly talented, was on there for about three years, I think. Mm -hmm. But she didn't really care much for the series. She didn't care much for the series, and to be honest, she didn't care much for the fans either. So I think <laughs> I, I, I was a bit of a godsend when I arrived. <laughs> yes, because of the way you uh, handled letters that came into the office, I imagine. Oh, that's right, yeah. I, I think the very first Doctor Who novel I actually worked on as a freelance would have been either Kinder or Snake Dance. Ah. And a few, a few novels onto that, I became editor range. Okay. Editor, editor of the range. All right. Um, and what year would that have been? That would have been 1984. 1984. Okay, that's easy enough yep. to remember. And, um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And why did you decide ultimately to leave the job? Um, I was in the job for about uh, three, three and a half years, and that time there was a lot of um, 
bad morale at WHO because we'd just been taken over by Virgin Books uh-huh. and they were seeking to put WHO in a different sort of category and no one was quite like that. A few people lost their jobs. But basically I left Doctor Who because of the Companion Chronicles, basically. I started the Companion Chronicles featuring Turlow, K9 and Harry. Mm-hmm. and the management weren't keen to go on with that range. Uh, they were just content to stay with the Doctor Who novelizations, which were bringing in good money and nothing else. So I felt I was bashing my, my head against a brick wall, and I wanted to go freelance anyway, because I'm not really a corporate man as such. Right, yeah, understandably. Did you find that those three books just... Uh, did they find, rather, that those three books just weren't bringing in the... Um the money that the others were? They certainly did not bring in the money that the Doctor Who novelizations brought in, but each one of them paid for themselves. Right. And kept kept the profile of the series up. I was wondering, because we were considering doing those as part of our podcast range, because they technically are target books. They may not be novelizations of stories we've seen, but they are target novelizations. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that and I, mean, I, 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 I wanted to carry that that range on because I, I talked to um, Janet Fielding about a Tevin Javanka book, and we we're thinking about doing a unit book as well. Oh, and nice. I wanted Ian Marty to do a, a second Harry Harry Sullivan book, but obviously that never happened. Um, and you said that you had to talk him out of killing Harry off at the end of that uh, first book. Right? That's right. Yeah, because Harry, Harry's a good character, so I wanted I wanted a sequel. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish we'd gotten that because Ian Martyr was hands down one of the best writers in the entire range, I believe. He, he, he was absolutely also a lovely guy to work with. And of all my writers on the target range, he was the one who never turned in a manuscript late. Right. <laughs> Which must have been um, an ongoing difficulty. So- Certain people did turn in things late, and I'm not mentioning any names, but he's wrote, he's written a lot of Doctor Who novels, and he's called Terrence. <laughs> I think we already knew this that? about him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think the, I don't think he's ever going to be coming on the program anytime soon because we haven't said as kind right. things about him. But uh, Carl J. Jammer asks, "Tell us about your best and worst day on the job at Target." Oh, I don't know. I think probably the worst day was my day when I decided to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my best days was working on Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who, The Early Years, really? which you may recall was about the beginning of Doctor Who with some exclusive photographs and uh, Ray Cusick, which no one had ever seen before. I loved yes. doing that. I loved designing that and mm-hmm. just reading all these things you've never seen before and seeing the initial plans for the Dalek and the mechanoids and everyone else. Yeah. That was one of my best days. Okay, terrific. He also asks, what's your favorite Target cover artwork and why? Ooh. If I tell you what it is, I'm going to upset people. But I think one of the best ones was the one for Black Orchid. Really? Okay. Yes, yeah, so I think it's just a, a, a totally striking cover. And I think, who did that? That was, um... Oh, who, did, who, did, who did that? You would ask me that. We're so far away from that at the moment. Um, Yeah, yeah. This is just future Tony breaking in to tell you that the answer to your question is Tony Macero. That would be Tony Macero. 
I, 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 I can't remember. It, it, it wasn't Andrew Skeletor or, no. or um, Alistair Pearson. It's someone else. But it, it, I thought it was a very striking cover. Uh, speaking of Andrew Skeletor, <laughs> yeah. he, he says give you uh, his best wishes. And, Thank you, Andrew. And to, My ask, and to ask if you have any idea what happened to the uh, art director, Mike Brett. Mike Brett, I have no idea what happened to Mike Brett at all. I think he's vanished from the face of the earth at the moment. He, he, he was a great guy to work with, um, and he actually loved Doctor Who as well, and he loved commissioning the um, the covers with Andrew Skeletor and Alastair Pearson, but I don't know what happened to him. Mm, okay. Another broad question. Oh, we already talked yeah. No, we didn't talk about this. What was the first book you had full editorial say over, and how did you feel about the finished product? Yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about that. As I said, the first books I dealt with were Kinder and Snake Dance. That was on a freelance basis. Um, the first book I think I actually actually commissioned and worked on was, it was either The Invasion or The Two Doctors. Uh-huh. I'm not sure. I think it might have been The Invasion, because I seem to remember that I approached Derek Sherwin to write it, and he didn't want to do it, so I, I commissioned Ian Marta to do it. Right, but it was one of those two. Yeah, we haven't uh, we haven't quite gotten there yet because we'll be yeah. doing the moon base this week, un- unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but how did you feel about the finished product in those cases? Um, well, the invasion was written by Ian Marta, so it's just brilliant. Right. And uh, the two doctors was written by Robert Holmes, which is the the first and only Doctor Who novelization he did, and that was great too. I had great chats with Bob Holmes on the phone over that as well. It's a very well-written book. Did he ever say why that was the only one he ever did? Because I'm sure he was approached to do others. I actually don't think he was, to be quite honest with you. Really? Um, yeah. I, don't, I think th- th- this was a time when Terence did most of them. Oh. And and Terence, Terence and Bob Holmes were apparently quite good friends, so mm. Bob Holmes was quite happy to let Terence do his stuff. Mm, okay, which is fine because, because... To, 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 to actually do a novelization takes quite a bit of work, and to be perfectly honest, the money we were offering wasn't fantastic money. Right, right, and I'm sure that was toward that was towards the end of Holmes's life as well, right? He would that's, that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He may not have been in the best of health to um, do it. Um, I, I, I think we may just have had a conversation about his final script, the, the, the last two um, shows in Trial of Time Lord. We had a quick chat oh. about that, but I'm not quite sure whether I was going to commission him to do that or not. Mm-hmm. Just as well that it didn't happen because of what yeah. happened the whole mess that we still don't know the true story about. That's right, yeah. Um, okay, I'm going back to something that's a little more, hopefully be willing to answer this. Um, in your 1994 interview with Kate Orman, you said... And oh, I dear. Quote, that, oh, that, in, that interview, yeah. That interview, yes. We were literally on a treadmill publishing one novelization yeah. a month. And if I had my way, the novelizations would have been longer. There are also a couple which I wouldn't have allowed to have been published in the state they were. I won't mention any titles, but you may be able to guess which ones they are. Now that it's almost 15 years later... <laughs> Would you be willing to mention which titles went out that you felt weren't the best? I won't be willing to mention even now, but I've just seen a couple of questions you may be asking me later, and the answer to that might tell you one of them. Got it. 
Okay, I th- and I think I know where we're going with that too. So yes, guessing, I, I believe so. All right, you also talked in that earlier interview about continuity references you often had to fight the authors over. Uh, specifically, yeah, yeah. Vic- Victor Pemberton having the TARDIS land on a cliff instead of the sea. That's right, yeah. Glenn Jones referring to Vic- Vicky as Tanny. And Peter yeah. Ling saying that Zoe had blonde hair, which led to him apologizing to you and buying you lunch. Well, I think he bought me lunch, not for whatever apology, but he wanted to pitch an idea to me. But it was a nice lunch anyway. Ah, okay. Well, do you remember any other incidents in which former authors outright forgot things they'd done before? Off the top of my head, I don't. But I do remember having a very genial argument over the phone with John Pertwee over the cover of The Ambassadors of Death. <laughs> and he, he said that we got the color of his hair wrong. It was darker um, in the original, wasn't it? It was dark from the original, yeah. So, and we were, we actually weren't wrong on that. But I said, yes, Mr. Pertwee, of course, your Doctor Who will do it. So we changed the cover. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it, it was a very genial argument. Right, right. I, I, I can imagine any argument with John Pertwee would have been just sparkling and glittering somehow. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> you ended up writing for The Range after stepping down as editor, correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's why. Yeah. Was that to avoid conflicts of interest, or was it because most of the original authors were able to adapt their own works? Um, mixture of things, really. I got, I decided to go freelance, and I realised I have to make some money for myself. So, effectively, I commissioned myself to do those four novelisations mm-hmm. to make some money for myself. Also, the four novelisations I did weren't deemed to be the most popular scripts to do, and very few people were willing to do them. I think I asked, was it, is it Dennis Spooner who wrote the Time Meddler? I think it, well, it was. Yes, it, yes. it was. I think I asked Dennis Spooner to novelise the Time Meddler, and he wasn't too keen on doing it. I have no idea why. Mm-hmm. But, but they were unpopular scripts to do. Right, right. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure Terrence would have done them. Yeah, he probably would have. In fact, that was something that came, kept coming up in our conversations, why it is that you were, I think we, the term we used was saddled, why you ended up being saddled with those particular scripts and Terrence Sticks didn't do them when he did do things like, you know, Planet of Giants later on. But, um, yeah, yeah I, I, I commissioned for Planet of Giants and Space Pirates. I think there were the last two ones he did. Oh, okay. Right, right. Yeah, because Space Pirates was, I think, the exact last, wasn't it? Or was it uh, the other way around? It, it, was, it was towards the end of the range, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll be coming up on that fairly soon. We've already done Planet of Giants, and unfortunately that was enough to kind of prejudice our panelists against his pro style a little bit. And I said, don't don't blame him on that book. That's <laughs> that's a source of I would like to say something about Terence's writing. Um, yes, he, he was doing stuff at one time, one novel a month. Right. And obviously, he could not turn in glittering prose every time. No. But all his books are very readable. When he's at his best, he is absolutely brilliant. And I, I've said this before. As far as I'm concerned, he's, in, he, he's on the same level as Joanne Rowling, but he's got so many grown-ups and kids to get reading again. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true, and I will I will always give him credit for that. Um, that being said, when you do read them in story order, 
that's when yeah. that's when those flaws tend to come out, and it's not so much yeah, that, 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 that's absolutely true. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's totally true. Yeah. Were there any of the other books that you did not get to write that you wish you could have? Um, the one televised story I would have loved to have written is, is the Celestial Toymaker. Really? Why? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know it's got quite a bad rep among fans these days, but I watched it on its original transmission, and you cannot imagine how magical and entrancing it was. And there is so much which could have been read into the character of the toy maker, and we could have made such a great thing of it, but we didn't. Right. But I right. would love to have done that. And well, I think you just—I was... think I've just answered your previous question. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Because I remember in the, some other interview. No, no, no. In, in another interview that I tracked down when uh, yeah. we read the Celestial Toymaker, you had said something about your suspicion that you believed it was Alison Bingaman rather than Jerry Davis who wrote it. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I think it was, yes. Yeah, I, I believe so too. Just looking. Yeah. Mainly because we looked at one of his books immediately after reading that, and we the difference in prose style was striking. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually met them for lunch years ago, and um, I, I, I presume she was his girlfriend then. But I just think he was getting a gig for her. But um, I'm not a great fan of that version of the toy maker. Other people might love it. I don't know. No, we didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We did find out. We did find out that she's gone on to quite a quite a big career Absolutely, in television yeah. production. I was shocked yeah, at good, that. Yeah, good for good for her. Good, no, good for her. Good for yeah. her. Yeah, and I think she wanted to leave the Doctor Who part out of it because I did uh, tweet her directly on Twitter yeah. asking if she'd talk about the book and never heard back from her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for understandable reasons. Yeah. All right. So your books. How did you feel about the Sensorites overall? Um, I liked him. It, it was it is it is a bit of a plodding story. It's it, it, it's very convoluted, but I, I quite liked it. I mean, it was the first Doctor Who I'd ever written, so I quite enjoyed doing it. Mm-hmm. What were the challenges that book posed for you initially? I think it was um, talking about the characters of Ian and Barbara, and ultimately at the end, looking at the consequences of what had happened. Mm-hmm. And that everyone was leaving sense rights by themselves, but who could guarantee that no one was going to exploit them again? Right. In fact, we noticed that the end of the book is quite different than the on-screen version, and yeah. that the anti-colonial yeah. message of the original story, which is pretty buried in the text, is much more up front. Mm-hmm. I assume you decided yeah. to bring it up front like that. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah because I, I find that um, Peter, Peter R. Newman, right? Yeah. Not a bad writer. It was just there were certain things about that story that needed needed some massaging. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Your next book was the Time Meddler, which Allison, of course, cites as a favorite of hers. Yeah, um, favorite she, of mine. Yeah, good, excellent. She and the rest of the panel, though, were a little bit nervous about certain things in that novel, especially the treatment of what was apparently the off-screen um, abuse. Of Edith, the rape scene. Yeah, I was I was trying to avoid that word, but there's no way around it. It's a gang rape yeah, of scene. Not, no, yeah. If you if you look at the if you look at the telly, it's quite obvious if you're of a certain age that Edith has been raped. Yeah. Um, hopefully, what I've done in the novel is 
written it so that the grown-ups reading the novel will know what's happened, but the kiddies won't. Good. It'll go over their heads. But I I do do not think you can avoid that rape scene. No, no, there's no way to do it. Um, And in fact, that's what, I think that's what Allison was concerned about, but I think she was more concerned from the adult point of view, because it seems from an adult point of view that the doctor seems to guess at what's going on, but he's so bad at human nature that he never says anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so the book never addresses it head on, mainly because it cannot be That is is a fair point, but I don't think, this sounds awful, but I don't think you can dwell on it too much with the doctor being too concerned, because that intensifies it and upsets children. Yeah, that's true. But it's it's a very, very fair point. Yeah. The the first time I saw it, in fact, when I was younger as a teenager, I honestly thought she'd been killed because she was, you know, lying there with her eyes wide yeah, open. Yeah, yeah. But later, as an adult, knowing what I know, it's like, no, that's that's definitely uh, post-rape trauma. But, yeah. you know... And I, that, that, that is something that you would never see in a children's TV show today. Never. Never, yeah. In fact, I'm surprised it was in it to begin with. Was that yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that something that Dennis Spooner probably had to fight for with the higher ups, or did they just say no? It's that's in keeping with the times, and we're doing it historical. I really don't know, but I mean, I think it was done very well. As I said, you know, the grown ups would know what happens; the kiddies wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just odd. Otherwise, we. We, as a group, loved that, and we especially adored um, your treatment of the meddling monk. So she wanted yeah. to thank Oh, he's great. Him. He's great, isn't he? Oh, yeah. I just wish they'd brought him back more often. It's just yeah. somehow Dalek I t- Mastermind. I'll I t- I t- I t- I tell you one thing. I watched the Time Meddler when it was first transmitted, and I adored the meddling monk. Mm-hmm. And I used to write my own Doctor Who comics, and he would always appear in them. <laughs> well, of course. He's fantastic. Yeah, of course, yeah. 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 Um, in that same book, we noticed that Stephen could possibly have been given some more backstory, in much yeah. the same way you did for Ian and Barbara in Edge of Destruction. Why did Why did you decide not to? Edge of Destruction was slightly different. It's very character based. Um, right. The Time Medal is much more of a romp. Right. Um, but I'm, I I love the character Stephen. Maybe I should have given him more backstory. I don't know. The only reason we wondered was because we could never quite nail that character down, and I think that's because it was so paper-thin to begin with. Perhaps so, yeah. Perhaps he was yeah. a little bit of a cipher, but um, uh, Peter Purvis is a great actor. He, he's done a couple of my Doctor Who um, Big Finish things. He's a great right. actor. Yeah, he's fantastic. It's, it's just mm. the, the character just kind of lies there on the page. Yeah. Um, and we just finished discussing The Underwater Menace, which was your next book. Mm-hmm arguably yeah. adds much more to the original plot, as you did with uh, Edge of Destruction. Yeah. What made you decide to add so much more to it? Was it, was it the reputation of the original story? or? Uh... Uh, well, I knew the reputation of the story, which I don't agree with, especially as we've seen it. I've got a new episode now right. on DVD. But um, the reason it's so different to the original story as transmitted was that the BBC were very, very late in sending me copies of the script. Oh. So basically, I listened to, I listened to an audio of it and did a transcript. Mm, okay. okay. So I let my imagination run wild with it. Then that might explain the uh, next question I had. Our, our regular listener, Jason Miller, asked, um, when you rewrote the ending, was that from the original script or was that entirely your own invention? 
entirely my own invention. Um, and I've seen the original script uh, since then, and I think my ending's better. I Sorry. Think so too. <laughs> <laughs> well, the high priest character is so risible in the original. Yeah, yeah. And Lola, give, yeah, 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 and to give him that sort of feeling of I've I've taken all I can stand and I can't stand no more and going yeah. after uh, Zaroff is a yeah. brilliant touch. And Allison was a bit concerned over the scene in which Jamie slaps Polly when she gets hysterical. Yeah, and it gave yeah. us a moment's pause because we couldn't find any evidence in the audio or the reconstructions that actually happened. Was that in the the script itself? Oh. Uh, as I say, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't read the script when I was doing the book. I think that's a very valid criticism. Um, I, I'm, possibly, I'm maybe sure that he didn't slap her. Uh, this was in the 80s when people were right about something in the 60s, and very often men just slapped women, very wrongly, of course, mm -hmm. just to calm them down. So um, if that's my fault. It's my, that's my bad, and I apologize for that. Well, no need to apologize. I think she was just wondering if it was originally there. The same thing with the line that Jamie has to her when she's being asked to stay with Zara by herself, and he says, well, you can't... You, I'm not doing the accent. <laughs> you can't abide by yourself. You're just a wee lass, and that's not in the original. Um, but it does sound like it should be, because of the 60s. That, yeah, uh, that, you're just a wee lass should be in the original, yeah. That, that is totally in keeping with time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Edge of Destruction was your last mm -hmm. book for the range, and that's my personal favorite of the ones yeah. you did. Uh, Will DeGlavin, and I, Will, I hope I'm getting that right, um, says, I'd be curious how he gained inspiration for the additional scenes and the depths of the TARDIS in the Edge of Destruction, like in the engine room and such. The imagery is so mm -hmm. wonderful, I feel as if I saw illustrations alongside the text. That, and that's mm -hmm. true, they're incredibly vivid. What made you decide on that? Well, sheer desperation, really. It was such a short script. I had to bulk it out. Right. But uh, no, I, I, sort of, I, I sort of drew ideas on J Jules Verne and things like that. And also, I was always really fascinated with other rooms and the TARDIS. I think in, I think in the Furious in the Deep, there's a TARDIS laboratory and there's a power room or an engine room in one of the shows featuring Zoe. So I just love the idea of other, other rooms in the TARDIS. Right, and it seems to have been borne it, out it, by it, the it, news it, it, it's, it's a big place. We just, we just see the console room and a couple of bedrooms in uh, the hot years era, so it'd be nice to show more rooms. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I love it when the new series does that, though they go very strange with it at times. Yeah. And at least it doesn't look like a disused hospital like in the uh, Tom Baker movie. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. so much. Also, this book has a beginning that's similar to that of The Underwater Menace because it has to yep. introduce new companions and fix yes. some problems with the books that preceded them. Is that, is that what you did? Did you go back to the uh, novels that preceded those two books and said, oh, I need to tie this up and I need to make sure this is a little tighter? Not particularly, but certainly with The Edge of Destruction, as I said before, it's very much a character piece. So I wanted people to know the dynamics of all the characters before we get into the, the horrible haunting scene mm. in the Edge of Destruction. Right. Well, there you have a double challenge because you've already had two separate introductions of Ian and Barbara and they completely conflict with each other. Yep. 
Yeah, so I find that um, that was something that when we were reading in story order, uh, we had two new panelists with uh, Edge of Destruction, and they said, oh, does this happen with every book? Because this is really lovely to have this little introductory. And I was like, no. Yeah. No, don't mm-hmm. get used to it. It's not going to happen that often. <laughs> uh, Sh- Shaban Galachan asks how tricky that book was to write. Very, very easy, actually. Really, it's it's a, it's a great script. Um, I came up with the middle, but it was actually very very easy to write. Was it just that David Whitaker's writing style is just that clear? Uh, David Whitaker is possibly the best script writer ever on Doctor Who. He's such a great writer. He was such a great writer. Yeah, yeah, I believe I believe so. We we just did yeah. Power of the Daleks, and uh, we're yeah, I mean, that's away. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You also wrote, well, you also wrote a significant portion of The Rescue because of Ian Marder's untimely death, right? No, that is a bit of a fan myth. Um, okay. What happened was that I commissioned Ian to do The Rescue, and he was writing on it, and he died. Um, I went to the funeral, and his widow said, I've got a manuscript here, would you like it? So I took the manuscript. It was the first draft. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Ian, first drafts were fantastic. Right. All I really did to it was tighten it up a bit, where it needs to be tightened up. I possibly added about five or six paragraphs towards the end, but that's it. But it is larger Ian's work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... So I'll, I'll put that myth to rest now. Okay, so John Hall, you were the one that asked that question, so stop perpetuating that myth on Facebook already. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Jason Miller also asked... Um, well, we all know about this, but we we're just fascinated to know this. What was the exact text of that heavily suggestive intro that he had for the rescue? Um, there were references to sixty nine throughout the rescue. <laughs> I think he got I think he got one in on the first page, but he did. Um, I I I told him not to do it. <laughs> I had to explain that to my panelists. They said he's not, and I said yes, he is. Yes, he is, and it could have been worse. Um, if not for the grace of God and Nigel Robinson, it would have been far, far worse. So he yeah, was just putting absolutely. 69 in yeah. willy-nilly. Oh, that's yeah. hilarious. I, 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 I think you'll find out that he makes a great point in the first paragraph, in the first page, of it's, it's 69 hours to die, though. Yes. <laughs> yes, to make of that what you will. And one of them turns very. How did we put it in the podcast? I think we said it's almost a Beavis and Butthead moment. They turn to each other <laughs> and say, "69." <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's right. It's like okay, we can we can deal with this. It's perfectly <laughs> fine, given that that <laughs> script definitely is. It has the same challenges as uh, Edge of Destruction. Yeah, um, yeah. People found that ending a little controversial. The, uh, the, the you added the killing off of the uh, Daedoans. Why uh, why go with such a downbeat ending? Um, to be honest with you, I really can't remember now. Um, sorry, I, I just can't remember the ending at all now. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like typically a martyr trick. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was um, the epilogue. The the Earthship finally yeah. lands, and they kill off the two Daedoans and. Uh, and the, the last line is something along the line of Hail the Earth Empire, and it's just a very creepy and dark ending. Yeah. When yeah. the rest of the book has been creepy and dark, but it's also, you know, full of 
references that are unusual, like uh, the Doctor talking about the Daedalus blinding, uh, what's his name, with science, and which I found am- incredibly amusing. <laughs> On a similar note, then, Ian McLaughlin asks, is there a story from the new series, uh, a new Who story, that you would have really liked to novelize, now that novelizations are a thing again? Yeah, it's really weird, isn't it? I've not seen the new novelizations. I'm not quite sure how they work or whether there's a market for them. But if I had to novelize, if I was asked to choose one of the new stories to novelize, it would be Rose. Really? Okay. Why yeah, that one? Absolutely. Because there's so much backstory of the Doctor you, you can get behind and investigate. And Rose has got a great story as well. Her mum's got a great story. Mickey's got a great story. And you could also say why the Autons were back on the earth again. Yes, yes, which I think the new novelization does do. That seems to be... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. ...catching the Doctor at the end of a story already in progress. Yeah, um, yeah. On the, on the similar note, though, I would think that if you were doing... Because you seem to be very good at introducing companions... I would mm-hmm. think that um, Smith and Jones would be an excellent book to, to that would be, that would be fun. That would be fun, actually. Yes. Yeah, be because fun, yeah. poor Martha Jones gets the short end of the stick quite often as far as characters. She does, years. doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. She's just kind of a man chaser who happens to have a doctorate. <laughs> um, Mark, Mike Fair asks: Did you get involved with the Sayward Nation thing and the two Dalek books? And if so, have you recovered yet? Uh, no, I haven't recovered yet. <laughs> <laughs> I have poor post-traumatic stress. Um, the story about the two Sayward books is that we wanted Eric to do them, right. and um, we obviously had to approach the nation estate, and the nation estate were asking ludicrous amounts of money. I think it was something like 50% of what Eric would earn, or maybe 60%, but yes. it was ludicrous. And Eric wasn't earning much anyway from it. So Eric said, forget that quite rightly so um briefly we discussed um novelizing uh, remembrance remember no not revelation of daleks right and uh, changing the character of davros to someone called the great healer and changing the name of daleks to something like the mutants but that was a stupid idea anyway so it wouldn't have worked but uh the nation estate were pains to deal with yeah. Absolutely, I don't. I don't blame Eric for saying no to him. Okay, yeah, that came up actually. I uh, interviewed John Peel last month, mm-hmm. and I guess part of the reason why he was able to deal with them was simply because he was more than willing to give up that portion of his income yeah, just yeah. to be able to do the books, which is yeah, quite yeah. a different thing. And that's understandable. Mm-hmm. It was his first first actual commissioned work. Um, what for you? makes for an excellent novelization as opposed to a merely good or competent one? Um, Characterization, investigating backstories. Um, The novelization, which just says, he said, she said, I can't cope with. But you need the the backstories. Especially now in the DVD age, we, we can see the story on TV. We need to understand what makes the characters work. And you can only really do that in a book. Yeah, true. True. What would you say then, um, of the originals that you did not write, what would you say were your favorites in that line? Oh, right. Oh, you caught me over there now. But yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've, got the, I've got the target book in front of me now. <laughs> um, 
the lift makers was fantastic. Absolutely yes. fantastic. Oh, Anything God. Ian Martin did was great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Ian Martin and the Myth Makers. Donald yeah. Cotton was fantastic. Donald Cotton was amazing. Yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. just revere him so much and wish that he'd done more. He was one of the lovely. He was one of the loveliest authors as well. It, this is back in the eighties, and we go out for boozy pub, uh, publishers' lunches, and he just regaled me with so many stories of the <laughs> theatre and the literary world. He was a lovely, <laughs> lovely guy. I did. I did track down a video of him. Um, I think he was speaking at Panopticon, one of those uh, yeah. conventions, and he was on a panel with uh, William Ems as well. And <laughs> it was very much this kind of '60s author. He had a cigarette of all things during the uh, yeah. panel and had a drink. And I was thinking that's got to be a martini or a scotch or something. He just had that <laughs> air about him, and we adored him. Whereas William Ems came off as slightly odd, even though we ended up liking the novelization of Galaxy 4. Yeah, yeah. Such a bizarre book. But, it is um, a bit, yes, yes. Yeah, just a tad bit. David Farnbro asks, why haven't you done much Doctor Who in the past 20 years or so, even though you actually have done quite a bit of Doctor Who in the last 20 years or so? Maybe you could tell us about those projects. Well, no, no one's really asked me to do much, really. Um... The Doctor Who book publishing scene now seems to be very much of a closed shop. Yes. So unless you're in that group, you can't do anything. I've done stuff at Big Finish. I've done a couple of uh, original audio novels um, featuring Debbie Watman as Victoria and Mary Tam as Romana, mm-hmm. both of whom now are sadly gone. Um, yeah. I adapted a couple of um, unproduced William Hartnell scripts, Farewell Great Mastodon by Alexander the Great, and the Masters of Luxor, which would have been the second Doctor Who story if the Daleks hadn't turned up. Mm-hmm. And I also did um, a short story for um, the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. So I do a little bit of Doctor Who, but if anyone asks what to do anymore, I'm more than willing to do it. Okay. And speaking of which, um, something that several of our listeners asked about, including Andy Taylor and Stephen Rodham, they asked about the audio adaptation of An Unearthly Child, which apparently was meant to come out a good, what, three years ago, and... It was supposed to come out on the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, yeah. Right. Um, what happened? Um, the whole thing's written. The whole thing's recorded. Um, um, but it's not being published. As far as I'm aware, there are copyright disputes with the estate of Anthony Coburn. And that's still going on. Um, It's something I'm very frustrated about. I wish the estate would grow up and let it come out. It's one of the things I'm proudest of doing, and it's not out. Even I haven't heard it. William Russell, who recorded it, hasn't heard it. Oh, my goodness. And and you had worked with the Coburn estate before, so this is kind of surprising, right? Um, well, I'd worked with the Coburn estate via BBC Enterprises in, in, in the days gone by, but um, oh. this is a matter between Audio Go and um, BBC Worldwide, or whatever they're called now. Got it. Okay, more corporate <laughs> stuff going on. Then. Yeah, more and more of that. That really is unfortunate. Someone did ask if it could be turned into an ordinary book for the revived target range, but I have a feeling it would run into the same problems. I suspect it would, actually, yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as other work, what other work have you been doing and what keeps you busy these days? 
Um, I, I, just, I just do editing here and there, um, the journalism, what have you. Just keep my hand in. And I think a lot of people aren't aware of your other work besides the uh, quiz books and the crossword book. They're, they're not aware that you've done a massive amount of writing in other areas. Could you tell us uh, some of the things that you're most proud of? Um, I've done novelizations of the uh, revised series of The Tomorrow People. Mm-hmm. I've done a series of books called Horror High, which are horror stories for kids. I've done romantic novels for girls. <laughs> um, whatever comes my way, really. Speaking of the revised version of The Tomorrow People, um, you're, you're speaking of the Australian reboot and not the one that came out on the CW a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, the, the Australian one. Not, not the most recent one, no, the Australian one. Not the most one. recent one. Not the, not the abomination that uh, we saw <laughs> a couple of years back. <laughs> Which is a great shame, because the idea of Tomorrow People is a fantastic idea. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just the way... Uh, if, you turn, if you turn it into a typical teen drama, though, it just kind of goes up the spout. Yeah. It doesn't work nearly as yeah. well. Especially CW. That, that's all you need to know about the quality of that one. <laughs> yeah, lordy. <laughs> So, I am not to blame for this. Craig Hansen, David May, and a few other fans wanted us to ask you questions from your own quiz books. Oh, dear, I'm dreading this. I know. Well, you don't need to dread anything. We decided to actually turn it on them and let our listeners join in on the fun in a feature that we can only do for you, Nigel Robinson. We are calling it This Is My Quiz Book. Kind of the right. This Is Your Life. We could actually do that for Michael Holt as well, but it wouldn't be as much fun. Anyway, uh-huh. here's what we're going to do. I have ten questions for you, called yeah. from a few of your well-received quiz books. By yeah. the time this episode airs tomorrow, our listeners will already have heard these questions, and they will already have competed for prizes in the special live event that I'm doing tomorrow morning. They right. don't know the correct answers yet. And so they're going to have to face off against you, essentially, to see who knows his uh, Doctor Who trivia really well. So when they listen to this episode on Monday, they'll get to hear the correct answers, provided you provide... No, no, provided you provide them. I'm going to read them right after, obviously. If I provide the correct answers, which I'm sure I won't. (laughs) But honestly, I I picked some of the ones that I would have difficulty with, too. So I'm not making this easy for anybody. Um, right. I will say, though, that you have 20 seconds to answer each question uh-huh. from the time I start uh, and uh, finish uh, reading it. So, are you ready? No. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> okay. Number one. What were the two dominant powers of the Milky Way in the 26th century? Draconia and Earth. Very good. Earth and Draconia or Draconia and Earth. Very good. Number two. Who was the last survivor of Zophathura? Megalos. Yes, I screwed up the pronunciation there, but Megalos is indeed the correct answer. Number three, what does the word side rat stand for? Oh, God, it's, it's TARDIS back to front, but it's, I don't know what it stands for, but it's TARDIS back to front in the war games. It actually stands for Space and Inter-Time Dimensional Robot All-Purpose Transporter. 
That's a long nonsense. Yeah, that's an absolute mouthful. I was like, what's Robot doing in there? <laughs> Number four. When Eldrad entered the Doctor's TARDIS, she was unable to harm the Doctor and Sarah. Why would it be impossible for any enemy to harm the Doctor in the TARDIS control room? It's because it's in a state of temporal grace, is that right? Yes, it is. At least until her shock, at which point it yeah. goes away. Good. Number five. Uh, Stephen left the Doctor to lead which race of aliens? Jano's people and the savages. Yes, I would have accepted the elders or the savages. Oh, the elders, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Number six. When the first Doctor had a toothache, to which dentist did he go for treatment? Doc Holliday in Tombstone. He did indeed, because Doc Holliday, believe it or not, listeners, was a dentist by trade. As well as a, he actually was. The, Donald Cotton didn't make that bit up. And number seven, which empire succeeded the Manusan Empire? Sumaran. Very good. The Sumaran yeah. Empire, indeed. I would hope so because you were responsible for Kinda and uh, Snake Dance. You should be. That that's right, yeah. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and how did, uh, number eight, how did the Daleks? lose their war with the Venusian colonies in the space year 17,000. I think it was a deadly virus, but I'm not sure. Oh, very close. It was in that same speech. But it was oh, by, right. the, by the intervention of a fleet of rockets from the planet Hyperon. Right. Yeah, so, but it is part of that same speech for sure. Number nine. Yeah. The Earth's solar system originally had a fifth planet between Mars and Jupiter. What happened to it? Um, it got destroyed by the Sendar, didn't it? Close. Mm, But not close enough, no. Not close enough, I'm afraid. The the Time Lords placed it in a time loop to try to contain the Sendar. Yes. Right. And number ten, name two of the Minions searching for the P7E. Oh, I really can't remember any of them. Sorry. <laughs> even even one, even one. Uh, there was one who was going to be the Doctor's companion. I know that. Seriously? Oh, I, didn't I think know so. That. Yeah. The, 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 well, she, she was touted as going to be the Doctor's oh, new companion. Tala, yeah. I, I Tala, Tala that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. it, and, and that didn't end up happening because the actress was. You know. Yes, Jackson, Herrick, Orf, or Tala. Good. Of course, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... All taken from, from Greek mythology. Right. So, Mr. Nigel Robinson, out of ten questions, you have received six correct ones. Right. <laughs> and that is fine. That was a horrible honestly. trick to play on me, you know. It, it really is, and I'm going to blame our listeners for that vociferously, because they're the ones that suggested it. But now, listeners, you know the correct answers, and you know which one of you have won our wonderful prizes, which would be uh, first runner. uh, The the winner is the winner of a hardback edition of the Space Museum, so it's one of those cases of God giveth, God taketh away. Uh, (laughs) First runner-up gets a hardback edition of Mutant 59, The Plastic Eaters by Kit Peddler and Jerry Davis. Mm-hmm. which has, strangely, nothing to do with doc, uh, Doctor Who or Doomwatch. And number three would be a copy of your own uh, Doctor Who crossword book that has absolutely none of the puzzles done in it. 
<laughs> so you'll be getting your ba- yours back against that person. <laughs> <laughs> yes, something to look forward to. Yeah. And we finally have one last question, and I'm going to include yep. myself in this. Lance Harrington had the personal question, why didn't you reply to my letter in the 80s? And I ask that question, I allow that question, because you did reply to mine, and I've told this story several times. When I was 15 years old, I sent a letter to uh, the Target offices offering my services as a novelizer, and apparently I wasn't the only one. But you did answer my letter, and in it you were very kind and said, "Um, we actually asked the original authors to do it first, but if we ever find ourselves in a situation where there's no one else available, we will definitely keep you in mind. Yeah. And I did not know if ever that was a form letter or not, so I'm going to throw that question not, in as well. Not, not at all, because um, I apologize if I didn't reply to a letter, but I made a point of replying to all the letters we received, because the fans who wrote into Target um, bought the books and paid yes. for my wage, essentially. <laughs> so you show, you, show, you show people respect. One question I do have, then. Did you... Did you ever get a letter from Peter Capaldi? No, I didn't. That surprised Most me. Most upset. <laughs> well, I think he would have been in his 20s by the time you uh, were doing the range, so maybe That's by right, then. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I know he gave the BBC production office just just a pain because he was constantly yeah. writing them, mm-hmm. which I think is brilliant. But I, I appreciate that letter. I, I really wish I still had it. Unfortunately, it got uh-huh. destroyed in Katrina years ago. But um, yes, I treasured that letter for ages. So I would, if Lance had gotten a response to his letter, I'm sure it would have been just as inspiring as yours was to me. So I, I thank you for that. Well, if you, give, if you give Lance my email, I'll send him a reply to that letter 30 years later. <laughs> Okay, I will I will definitely do that. I think he'll appreciate it. Okay. So, thank you very much, Nigel Robinson. And no thank problem you for your time. Thank you. Thanks very and, much indeed. Yes, and thank you, fellow time travelers, for all your valuable time. Next time we'll have a special all male, all gay discussion panel to discuss the landmark and possibly homophobic novelization by Jerry Davis of the Moon Base. Until then, enjoy your travels and have a great Memorial Day. Bye-bye. Cheers, Ben. Thanks a lot.